0: Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are so excited to be here with you today. We are. I have a really wild case for us today.
1: I'm excited because you said it was a listener request, right?
0: It is. Melissa had done a case last week that was requested by a listener, so I thought I would do the same this week because we truly do appreciate suggestions. They are the greatest. They are. Our listener, Rusty, suggested multiple cases that were super intriguing, but one of these suggestions stood out to me above the rest. So thank you, Rusty. I really enjoyed researching this case. And it's actually a twofer. You get two cases rolled into one. So two cases? Mm Mm-hmm. So is it a family member? (laughs) You're going to have to wait and see. I'm not giving out all my cards at the beginning.
1: (laughs) So hard for me, right?
0: (laughs) I know. You do not like surprises. She just wants all the information all at once. That's right. But just like our listeners, she has to wait and hear it when you do. Which sucks. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But I will say this. I don't know if y'all are ready for today's case. It is like no other case you've heard, guaranteed. Oh, really? Mm -hmm, Unless you've heard this case before. (laughs) Other than that, I don't think there's another case that I've ever come across quite like this one. Good suggestion, Rusty. Before I start, I do want to give a disclaimer that some of the terms used in this case are not what we would consider socially acceptable today and are not terms I would ever use but they are terms chosen and used by the actual people involved in this case. So I will likely mention them at least for the sake of authenticity. And I just want to say we never intend to offend anyone other than the dirtbags we discuss on this podcast. Oh, now you've got me super intrigued. What are you going to tell me, Christy? (laughs) Watch, I'll tell you and you'll be like, oh, I know this case. (laughs) (laughs) So to rip off the band-aid of political correctness, the case today largely involves what is called a freak show. I'll likely refer to it as a carnival, but freak shows were definitely a thing throughout the 1900s. Our case begins in the 1930s. <gasps> we're covering carnies. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I can't even believe I decided to do this case because my children. I was just talking with my middle daughter about this. My children have never been to a circus. Not you're once. terrified. <laughs> I am terrified of clowns. Even like the big top music. I'm not even going to do it because it freaks me out. <laughs> So I did have a little bit of a hard time, but no clowns are involved. So I was like, okay, I can do this case. So our case does begin in the 1930s when our dirt bag is born, but it continues for decades. These traveling carnivals usually consisted of people with rare deformities. In retrospect, I have to say, it was kind of like a human zoo. People would pay to come and look at other people who look different in some way. Things like a giant man who married a half woman, bearded ladies... A man with three legs, people with rare skin conditions, conjoined twins, the elephant man, the penguin lady, the lion man, and the person who we will be discussing today, the lobster boy. I have seen pictures of him. Do you know the case then? I don't think I do. He's got a dark past. Oh, I did not know (laughs) that. So a show like this in today's sense would more so include things like body contortionists, sword swallowers, or fire breathers. Society has largely moved away from this type of entertainment, and people with certain medical conditions can more easily receive help for their condition or have the opportunity to earn money in a more traditional way, something that wasn't offered to them a century ago. And not to say anything negative about this way of life, just that people have more options and inclusion now in comparison to this era. Oh yeah, we're much bigger on
1: inclusion now.
0: For sure. Grady Franklin Stiles Jr. was born on June 18, 1937, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I found differing birth dates for Grady but amazingly I was able to find his death certificate so this is in fact his actual birth date. His father Grady Franklin Stiles Sr. was around 25 when Grady Jr. was born and his mother Edna Stiles would have been around 24 years old. Grady had one sister and one brother. The Stiles family had been afflicted with a rare condition called ectrodactyly. It is also known as split or cleft hand and foot malformation or as in today's case Lobster Claw Syndrome. The Greek word ectrodactyly translates to abortion of a finger. It can affect the hands and the feet. It can present in one extremity or in any combination ranging to all four. The severity of the condition can vary and is passed down genetically. This malformation was very common in the Stiles family and had been for over 100 years. William Stiles is reported as the first family member to have ectrodactyly in 1805. Grady Stiles Jr. was the fifth consecutive generation to have the condition, and he would pass it along to a sixth generation. It can skip a generation, but didn't seem to in the Stiles family. At least one or two of the offspring would have it.
1: I wonder if it makes it easier to have a malformation if everyone in your family has had one, so it's not like you're the only one, or if it makes it harder because... Then you're not the only one, and everyone else is like, suck up and deal with it.
0: Well, it seems that their family was actually quite proud of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, Grady Sr. was really proud of the malformation, and he would tell people that their offspring had a 50-50 chance of getting it. He was wanting his offspring to get it. What was the advantage? Well, he charged a nickel for onlookers to see his carnival performance. Oh, so he was a carny too? Yes. Is it okay to say carny? I do in here. Okay. <laughs> That's what I mean. I apologize if we're saying words that we shouldn't. This is not our community, the carnival. Like I said, I've never even been to a circus. So I apologize in advance if we're saying words that we shouldn't. But no, he was quite proud of it. He was wanting his family members to have it. Well, and I can
1: see if you're making money off of it, then you would.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Globally, ectrodactyly occurs between one and nine births out of a million, depending on the form of the condition. When Grady was born, both of his hands and feet were affected. His hands were missing the middle finger. His pinky and ring finger were fused together. And his index finger and thumbs were also fused together, giving his hands a claw shape. We've posted a photo of him on our social medias like we always do. So you can go and take a look if you're curious what that actually looks like. And we won't charge you a nickel.
1: (laughs) We will charge you a positive review on Apple (laughs)
0: Podcasts. Yes. His legs and feet were also affected by the condition, and so he was unable to walk. His feet were shaped more like flippers, and his legs were shortened. They basically stunted at the knees. So he used a wheelchair to get around. Despite his condition, Grady was able to perform most of his daily tasks on his own. He would wheel himself around in his chair, and he could crawl quite effectively along the floor with his hands. His hands were thick and strong, and he obtained a massively strong upper body. Oh, he would? Mm-hmm. In today's world, Grady wouldn't have had an issue holding down a job, but in the 1930s when he was born, he would have been shunned from working in a public place. I could totally see that. The Stiles family decided to use their condition to their advantage and join the carnival life as sideshows, and this life had become extremely lucrative. Turns out a lot of people paid to come and see these types of carnivals or traveling shows. Well, there wasn't the same kind of entertainment as there is today. Right. Right. And no pun intended, but you do have to hand it to their family for making something of themselves in a society where that could have been very difficult. Grady Sr. had been in the carnival scene since he was just a young boy. And by the time his son Grady Jr. was seven years old in 1944, he was also introduced to the family business and was known as the Lobster Boy. So the dad didn't just
1: profit off of putting his son in the circus. He was actually in the circus as well.
0: Yes. And he had been since he was a young child as well.
1: Okay. Okay. But his parents put him in the circus?
0: Well, they must have because he was a young boy at the time, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm getting it. I'm Mm -hmm. following the story. It's the carnival life, the traveling (laughs) sideshow carnival life for the styles. And I think that's why Grady Sr. was just proud of it. Like, yeah, let's keep this going. Like, we want our Mm -hmm. kids. We have a 50-50 chance that they hopefully will get it. When Grady Jr. joined the carnival, his family pulled him out of school. This was to be his life, to sit in a chair and earn money by letting people point and stare at him. Even though they traveled with the carnival, Pittsburgh in the winter isn't usually a place where people want to attend an outdoor event, so a lot of the carnival workers would spend their winter in Gibsonton, Florida, and the Stiles family eventually moved close to there. And I did a little research, and it seems like Pittsburgh gets to around 24 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter, which is about minus 4 degrees Celsius. And this is not very cold to us Canadians, but I can still see why it's not practical carnival weather, and they do get snow. Mm Mm-hmm. Grady Jr. allegedly enjoyed the carnival life. He liked being in Gibsonton. He wasn't bullied like he was in school or made fun of for his condition there. He learned to read and write, and he could even shoot a gun. And there's a little foreshadowing for you there.
1: That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not so awesome for his future victims. No, it's not.
0: But he was able to, like I said, get around and Mm -hmm. do things and could have lived a fine life. Okay, so I went down a little rabbit hole with Gibsonton, so I'll explain it to you briefly since it does play a part or sets the scene at least in today's case. Gibsonton, which is a 20-minute drive from Tampa, Florida, started out as a fishing community and those who worked in the lumber industry. In the 1940s, it started to become the winter getaway destination for sideshow carnival workers and a permanent residence for retired carny workers. What a fun place to live. It sounds amazing, actually. (laughs) It's home of the International Independent Showman's Association and Museum. The association opened in 1966 and is the largest showman's association in the United States. The museum is still open today and features all things traveling carnivals. (gasps) Which reportedly started in the late 1700s.
1: Now I want to do a road trip. I was thinking,
0: Melissa's going to want to go (laughs) here. I don't know if I do, though. (laughs) I I could probably handle it. (laughs) It has one of the first Ferris wheels ever constructed in the U.S. and has lots of memorabilia. Oh, I so want to go. Yeah. And in case you're wondering... It has a four and a half stars out of five on TripAdvisor. Because <laughs> I actually went to the <laughs> Were website. Were <you> armchair traveling? <laughs> I was. I was looking through all the pictures and I went to the website and it looks like a really neat place. Because so many carnies began to call Gibsonton home, the town started to cater to their unique characteristics, like building two counters in the post office, one for average height folk and one for little people. Oh Yes, I just think it would be so neat to go and see this place. This town became a safe haven for the carnival sideshow workers. They could live here together without getting stared at or ridiculed. Although I did read that Grady purposely wore gloves out in public so people couldn't get a free peek at his hands. Oh, he's an entrepreneur. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to see him, you gotta pay. Workers would also keep their exotic circus pets with them in Gibsonton. And I thought what a vibe it must have been walking around that town. That is awesome. Just some monkeys and elephants. Yeah, who knows what else? Lions. (laughs) What is it? Lions and tigers and and bears. bears. Oh Oh, my! (laughs) Al, the Giant, opened Giant's Camp in Gibsonton in the late 1940s with his wife, Jeannie. He was eight feet, four and a half inches tall, and she was only two feet, six inches, born without legs. Their camp was a place that everyone was welcomed at. Their daughter, Judy Rock, said, quote, Gibtown was a great place to grow up. When I was in sixth grade, I already knew how to eat fire and swallow butter knives. Those are lifelong skills. Pretty wild. But I thought hopefully this helps to set the scene of what it was like when this case took place. I so want to go. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) Like I mentioned earlier, Grady was very much a part of this scene and had been since a young age. His show eventually became quite famous. While performing, Grady met a young woman named Maria Teresa Herzog. Different sources refer to her as Maria, Mary, or Teresa, but her name used on Grady's death certificate is Teresa, so I will call her that. Teresa had run away from an abusive upbringing and marriage to join the circus. She didn't have any deformities, but still worked for the traveling carnival doing other things. Teresa had been married to a carnival worker named Jerry Plummer. His job included setting up the tents, taking care of animals, and cleaning the grounds. He abused her, and so she divorced him. Teresa was born in Vermont and had been sexually abused at the hands of her stepfather. Mm. So she had already had a rough upbringing before meeting Grady. Before long, Teresa and Grady fell in love. Sadly, she was unaware that her days of being abused were not over yet, even though it didn't start out that way. Teresa said, quote, Grady was such a charming man. Everyone enjoyed being in his company. As in many other cases of domestic abuse, things were good for a while. Teresa was working her way up in the carnival. She went from selling tickets to eventually becoming Electrified Girl. That, what? Yeah. <laughs> electrified Girl.
1: They didn't electrocute her.
0: They made it appear like she had. So the show had figured out a way to make it look like she had been electrified, even managing to have what looked like electricity shoot out from her hands. Oh, special effects. Mm-hmm. Unless it was real electricity, but I don't <laughs> think that it was. Or I don't think she would have been able to do that job for long. Teresa and Grady lived together for nine years and then were married. Before long, Grady developed a drinking problem. He drank quite heavily and he was an angry, aggressive drunk. The worst kind. He would hit Teresa on her body so that the bruises didn't show up on her face and ruin the show.
1: So he'd been abusive before and that's why he knew how to hide the bruises?
0: No, he didn't become abusive until he got his drinking problem.
1: Okay. Okay. But that's pretty clever to know to not hit her on the face where right. somebody's going to notice.
0: Right. But he's also, it's all about the circus. It's all the carnival mm. life. Right? It's all about and the she's, looks, right? Yeah. She's in the show. She's now has a an act of her own. And so you can't have this beautiful woman with bruises on her face. Right. And call her electrified girl. He would hit her with his claw-like hands that were solid and strong and ram his head into her stomach. He would do this to others as well. And he was slowly starting to be despised by those around him. He was just becoming mean to everybody. He would just run his head into somebody's stomach? Well, he's in a wheelchair. It's so bizarre. I know. I told you this is a bizarre case. According to the book Murder in the Tropics by Stuart B. McIver, Teresa and Grady's first two children, a daughter and then a son, died from pneumonia, each within a month of being born. Oh, that's awful. I'm thinking poor Teresa. Like she's being abused. She has her first two babies pass away. This is a rough life. It is. And she's already been abused by her stepfather sexually and abused by her first husband. That's a lot for her. Their third child, the first one to survive, was a little girl born in 1963. They named her Donna, and she was completely healthy. She did not inherit ectrodactyly. And I will use the children's names in this case, since most of them are willingly in the media Mm -hmm. as adults, because normally I don't like to include the children's names. In 1969, the couple had another daughter, Kathy, who was affected by the condition. I believe they had another child, but I couldn't find much information on her, but I believe it was another daughter who had ectrodactyly in both hands. Grady integrated his children into the carnival show. They were famously known as the Lobster Family. Donna was not part of the show since she did not have the family's claw-like hands. Ouch! But she still worked with the carnival. Oh yeah, you can work behind the scenes, honey. Yeah you can't have her with regular hands right and be in the lobster family unfortunately becoming a father did not calm down Grady's violent ways it now just extended towards his children so total dirtbag surprisingly it was Grady who eventually filed for divorce not Teresa that is odd right Teresa was not informed about the court hearing and so when she didn't show up for it the judge granted full custody of the children to Grady what yeah that is really abnormal for that time so he had done that purposely. Yeah. Set up a court date and then didn't tell her about it. And then they get there. She's not there. And the judge is like, OK, you can have the children. Wasn't she subpoenaed or anything like that? I guess not. That's crazy. Yeah, Everything that I found said she was not informed. So it wasn't that she just didn't show up. That's a dirtbag move. Yeah. Total dirtbag. And he's beating the children, too.
1: Does he want to purposely keep them to hurt her or purposely keep them to keep beating them?
0: I think he wants to keep them to keep them in the show. If he has no kids, they're not the Lobster family. Yep. It came down to the bottom dollar. Mm -hmm. They went their separate ways and both Teresa and Grady married other people. Teresa married Harry Glenn Newman on June 8th, 1974. He was also a carnival performer. He was a short person and had stage named himself Midget Man. He was known as the world's shortest man. He was just over three feet tall and again no offense intended for using that word but it is what he named himself. Teresa and Harry had a son whom they also named Harry Glenn Newman but they referred to him as Glenn. Glenn was born without any physical deformities. In fact he grew up to be over six feet tall and 240 pounds. Wow. Grady got married to a woman named Barbara Browning. They had a son whom they named Grady III or little Grady they've referred to him sometimes. He was born like his father, and both of his hands resembled claws. Grady moved his family back to Pittsburgh. While in Pittsburgh, his oldest daughter, Donna, now a teenager, met a boy named Jack and fell in love. Grady was not happy about this. Saying he didn't approve is putting it lightly. Most dads don't
1: like it when their daughters start dating. <laughs> That's true.
0: <laughs> Apparently, Donna had started missing school, and according to Grady, when Donna's teacher came to the house to discuss the situation with him, he seduced her with his claws. He said, quote, this teacher, she really liked claws. So we had sex right in the house and she just kept coming back and back and back because of this. Everyone I have sex with wants to have sex with my claws. They love it when I use my claws. What? Yep. Huh. That's what he claimed. But this is just giving you an idea. Like I put this in here to give you an idea of his arrogance. Yeah. And just he thinks he's the cat's meow. Yeah. All that and a bag of chips. Grady was growing in his abusiveness towards his family. And so Donna ran away from home and stayed with her boyfriend Jack's sister. Grady was furious and threatened to hire detectives to send her to a juvenile home. And he also threatened to kill Jack. Donna told her father Grady that she was pregnant and wanted to marry Jack. Apparently, she was still a virgin, but hoped that this would change her father's mind about her being with Jack. Yeah, I doubt it. Grady actually agreed. What? Well, he thought she was knocked up. Oh, so now he needs her taken care of. Right. So he agrees and then Donna moves back home. Donna and Jack had a wedding date set for September 28th, 1978. Sadly, this blissful event would never happen. The day before the wedding, Donna had gone out with Jack to purchase her wedding dress, which is unusual that it wasn't already purchased, but maybe more common for that time. Yeah, that is odd. Yeah, like it's the night before you're just buying your dress. (laughs) Excuse <laughs> me, when they've had a considerable amount of time. Like, right. It's not like a shotgun wedding. No. While they went dress shopping, Grady went to a bar to drink. According to McIver's book, when the young couple returned, Grady sent Donna off to find his wheelchair so he could have a word with her fiance. While she was looking for the chair, Grady took out a shotgun and shot young Jack in the chest twice. Oh. Donna heard the shots and ran back towards the house to see Jack holding his chest. She later said, quote, it didn't seem real. I shook Jack. He didn't move. There was blood coming out of his mouth. And I looked up and dad was standing on his knees, looking out the window, smiling at me. And I said, why did you do this? Because I told you I would. Donna responded to her father by saying, quote, I'll see you in your grave. Jack was dead upon arrival at the hospital. He was only 18 years old.
1: That's so awful. To take a a life is awful, but to ruin
0: your child's happiness? Yeah. The night before her wedding? Yeah. And he's smiling. Dirtbag. So it was all a ruse saying, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. I'm sure he made up his mind right then and there. Well, then I'm going to kill that boy. Yeah. And might as well come back home so he's closer for me to shoot. Right. When the police arrived on scene, Grady calmly said, take me. I'm ready. Okay. So are you ready for the real circus to begin? Yeah, because I'm thinking that's pretty tame right now grady would not spend one day in jail for murdering a young boy in cold blood what not one day who did did... he pin it on he doesn't he admits it he confesses let me explain he's not insane no he's not you should see melissa's face right now (laughs) she's like what the heck (laughs) he doesn't try to pass it off on his daughter no he says i'm ready take me when they get there
1: do they feel sorry
0: for him let me explain
1: (gasps) they don't think he can shoot a gun because i didn't think he could shoot a gun (laughs)
0: No, it's actually quite surprising. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, okay, I can see how that happened. It's not right, but I can see how it happened. He did have a trial. And like I said, he openly confessed to killing Jack. The jury consisted of six women and six men. The defense had argued that Grady did it out of love and compassion for his family to protect his daughter. The prosecution argued it was premeditated murder. So we have the two sides. Oh, he's doing it out of love. And no, Mm -hmm. he's doing it cold heartedly. Grady's lawyers played up the sympathy vote for Grady. Grady would sit in his wheelchair and cry. They brought up Grady's deformities as well as his suffering from emphysema and kidney disease. His lawyer said, quote, he has not had a happy life. Another one of his lawyers stated that Donna's testimony against her father was the, quote, greatest hurt and greatest shame for Grady. He said, quote, try and visualize the love and compassion this poor soul had for his children all Grady has is his family. He has no real friends because people don't want to have someone as him as a friend. And I thought, think of poor Jack's family, losing their son at the young age of 18 with what should have been his entire life still ahead of him.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking, and the Oscar goes to...
0: Yeah, but he's a performer. Yeah, He's an entertainer. He knew to sit in his wheelchair and cry. The defense brought in some of Grady's co-workers as character witnesses for him. They included the bearded lady, a short person, and Paul Fishbow, the famous fat man who was too large to fit in the witness chair. The prosecution pointed out that Grady had threatened to kill the young boy on numerous occasions and had even purchased a gun with intent. The jury deliberated for three hours. They honestly didn't find him
1: innocent, did they?
0: No, they don't. Okay. According to a local newspaper article that I was able to find, Grady Styles, at the age of 41, was found guilty on February 22nd, 1979, for third degree murder of his almost son in law, Jack Lane. Third degree murder means that it occurred from negligence, a crime of passion, or out of recklessness. So they bought the prosecution story. Yeah, basically, that would be a crime of passion. Mm-hmm. Judge Tom Harper, it turns out, did have compassion on Grady, and instead of sentencing him to prison, he sentenced him to house arrest and 15 years of probation. What? The judge said it was because the prison system was not equipped to house someone with Grady's condition. He said it would be cruel and unusual punishment to send him there without any proper provisions.
1: But he lived in the real world. He had figured out a way to do things.
0: Exactly. Basically, he didn't even get a slap on the wrist, in my opinion no like not even
1: and house arrest which house he's a carney. he moves around
0: yeah and he's allowed to move that's crazy yeah I had read that the prison system as well had talked to the judge and was like we can't take him like we're not equipped for him and I guess they probably weren't in that time Donna went to live with her mother and Grady went on to become an even bigger tyrant Grady moved back to Gibsonton this was apparently not a violation of his parole Well, he would just be so emboldened by getting away with murder. Exactly. And that is why he becomes even a bigger tyrant. I read in one account that he used this to his advantage by moving to Gibsonton. He was able to avoid paying the $14,000 that he owed his defense team. So he basically, he didn't want to pay his lawyers. He skipped town. He skipped town and moved back to Gibsonton. And he had earned all of those nickels. No, that was his father. (laughs) He was earning more than a nickel. They were, like I said, it was lucrative. They had good money. So why did he skip it on his bill? Because he's a greedy SOB. Oh. (laughs) He's not a nice guy. He is a dirtbag through and through. Yeah. He started up his own show along with 10 other acts and involved most of his family in the performances. So he didn't have to pay them probably. Probably. He felt invincible knowing that he could literally get away with murder. While beating his family, he would proudly proclaim, quote, I killed before and got away with it. I can do it again. Needless to say, it did not take long for Grady's second wife, Barbara, to divorce him and get out of Dodge. Good for her. Mm-hmm. After this, Grady reportedly stopped drinking for a time. He was definitely a different person when he wasn't drinking. Surprisingly, Grady got back together with his first wife, Teresa. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. She had thought he changed his dirtbag ways. She divorced her current husband, and she told their daughter Donna that she still loved her dad and married him for the second time in 1989, even though he had murdered their daughter's fiancé the night before their wedding years prior. What was she thinking? I don't know. But she had been abused since a child. (sighs) Yeah. And he had stopped drinking. So he was this nice guy again. He was the Grady she fell in love with for a short time.
1: Yeah, but the abusive Grady
0: is just one drink away. Exactly. Exactly. Some of Grady's children were married at this point and they too joined in the acts with their own children who were affected by etrodactyly. His daughter Kathy and her husband ran the Animals Oddities exhibit. Donna had married a man named Joe whose family owned a restaurant and did an act that made it look like Donna was transformed into a gorilla. Glenn, Teresa's son, was the human blockhead and would drive nails up his nose. Grady however made sure to remain the star of the show. Oh of course. There was a very short period of happiness for the reunited couple. I read it was as short as two weeks. Oh, that's a short honeymoon. They got married and two weeks later, he started drinking again. And Teresa would almost immediately regret her decision to remarry Grady.
1: It's just so sad for her. I know. So she left a good man to go and marry Grady again.
0: Yeah. But he had stopped drinking after his second wife left him. He's like, okay, stop drinking for a while. Clean up my act. And she was bamboozled. I just feel so sorry for her. I do. He returned to verbally abusing those around him, again, headbutting them in the stomach and punching them or strangling them with his massive claw-like hands. And remember, he has this massive hand and upper body strength, so he is a force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. Grady III later said that drinking alcohol brought out the worst in his dad. Things would take a surprising turn on the night of November 29, 1992. Grady was settled in for the night. (gasps)
1: Somebody going to murder him? It is a twofer case. I know. I remember. (laughs) So this is where the second murderer comes in, right? Yes. Yeah. And does he get his just comeuppance?
0: (laughs) Yes. Awesome. (laughs) The light bulbs just turned on. Melissa got excited. Wait. I figured it out. (laughs) So like I said, Grady was settled in for the night. He was drinking his alcohol of choice, which was Seagram 7, a type of whiskey, and smoking cigarettes in his underwear while watching TV. Around 11 o'clock p.m., Teresa and her son Glenn decided to go next door to visit Grady and Teresa's daughter, Kathy, and check on Kathy's daughter, who was sick at the time. Kathy and her family lived in the trailer next to theirs. Little Grady III had already been tucked into bed for the night. When Teresa and Glenn left, they left the front door open because their air conditioning wasn't working. Because of his high blood pressure, Grady liked the electric fans on and the doors open. Grady was sitting with his back towards the open door. A man quietly walked into the trailer. He was wearing jeans, a black leather jacket, black Nikes, and a backwards Raiders hat. Grady turned and saw the intruder. He yelled at the man to get out of his house and then turned around and kept watching his TV show. Grady obviously knew this man and did not feel threatened. He was like, what are you doing in my house? Get out. There's some obscenities in there too, but I didn't put that in there what he actually <laughs> said because someone walking by heard him yelling oh, at okay. this man. Yeah, I was wondering how you knew what he said. Well, and there's a confession later. While Grady had his back once again towards the intruder, the man raised a gun and shot Grady in the back of the head, ending his life. Little Grady III heard the shots from where he was sleeping, but thought they were from the movie that his dad was watching. Detective Michael Willett was one of the officers on the scene. He said the trailer smelled like cigarettes and whiskey. He found Grady in his underwear, hunched over in a large armchair with blood all over his head and face. There was blood and brain tissue on the counter, as well as Grady's cigarette package. Grady had been shot three times, indicating that the killer wasn't taking any chances of his victim surviving. Only one bullet had exited his head. Overkill. Yeah. Since Grady was such a dirtbag, the list of suspects was a lengthy one. Everyone hated Grady. There was a lot of people in Gibsonton who despised the infamous lobster boy. One neighbor was quoted telling the police that Grady was, quote, a very rude individual. And that was putting it mildly. (laughs) Like, that was a polite way to say he was a dirtbag. (laughs) Kathy, one of Grady's daughters, later said that Grady was, quote, like Satan himself, very cruel, very cold-hearted, very sadistic. And that's his daughter? That's his daughter. Wow. Mm -hmm. Who was still working in the show with him, with her husband. Quickly, the police started to take a closer look into Grady's own family as suspects, and they soon discovered the truth. Detective Willett noticed that none of the victim's family members seemed overly upset that he had been murdered, and he thought it was mighty convenient that Teresa and Glenn had stepped out just minutes before the shooting. He also came to the conclusion that robbery was not a motive, since there was money still in Grady's wallet, and nothing appeared to be stolen. Any guesses at who was responsible? The son-in-law? You're close. The police start with the stepson. They started by giving Glenn a polygraph test. It made sense for them to start with the stepson, I guess. Glenn failed the test, and police started to strongly interrogate him. Glenn eventually cracked under the pressure and told the police everything. His story implicated his mother, Teresa, and another man named Chris Wyant. After Glenn's statement, all three of them were arrested for Grady's murder on November 30th, the day after Grady had been killed. So by the very next day, they had these three arrests. Three people arrested. Wow. Yeah. Teresa and Glenn were charged with first degree murder. Chris was also charged with murder, one, as well as conspiracy to commit murder. They were all held without bail and tried separately. Glenn, so the stepson, mm-hmm. told police that Grady would lay in bed and say things like he should kill everyone and just get it over with. He said that Grady would go to the local bar in the morning and drink there most of the day. He would then return home to terrorize his family. Teresa had finally had enough. She began stealing small amounts of money until she had saved $1,500. They had to be small amounts so Grady wouldn't notice. Teresa and Glenn used the $1,500 that Teresa had saved to hire a hitman and rid them of Grady for good. They hired the 17-year-old neighbor boy, Chris Wyant. (sighs) Chris was too young to purchase a gun, so he had a friend named Dennis Cowell buy a 32 Colt automatic for him. Teresa told the police that Grady would viciously beat his entire family. He would headbutt her until she bled. What? She said she, quote, didn't care if he was shot or stabbed as long as he was killed. So, they're like, the whole
1: family's in on it.
0: The only people of the family who knew about it was Teresa and her son Glenn. So, okay. Yeah. But the others didn't care that like they were relieved probably when they found out that he was murdered. As far as we know, maybe they knew, maybe they didn't. I'm not sure. Chris Wyant was tried first. He was convicted of second degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to 27 years. The man who purchased the gun, Dennis Cowell, pled guilty to accessory charges and was given three years behind bars. Teresa was tried next. Her defense team tried to use battered wife syndrome to plead her innocence which would essentially explain her actions as self-defense. Teresa testified on the stand and told multiple instances of Grady abusing her. She said he was always drunk and would do things like trying to smother her with pillows, sexually assaulting her, brutally beating her, and the children, and even threatened her while holding a sharp knife against her throat. Their daughter Kathy testified that Grady had hit her when she was seven months pregnant. Kathy was trying to stop Grady from beating on her mother, so Grady punched her and knocked her out of her own wheelchair. Teresa had also testified that Grady was intoxicated on the night of his death, but the toxicology report proved that he was not drunk. This finding complicated her trial as it hurt her credibility. Jurors also had a hard time understanding why she didn't just leave Grady like she had before. Teresa explained this, saying that Grady told her that he would kill her if she left and that he was much more abusive than he had been during their first marriage together. She said, quote, My husband was going to kill my family. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. I'm sorry this happened, but my family is safe now. Well, she has kind of proof that he would do that. Yeah. From his first murder. Right. And he was threatening all the time. Yeah, and he knew he could get away with it. They yeah. can't even send me to prison. And I believe that she believed this. Oh, I think so too. And I believe he probably would have killed someone else in their family. He seemed like a big enough dirtbag to do it. Yeah. A reporter claimed in the Associated Press that, quote, Mrs. Stiles portrayed her husband as a powerful drunken brute who routinely swatted her with his pincer hands. Different social workers and psychologists testified on Teresa's behalf. However, after deliberating for 11 hours, the jury found her guilty of manslaughter with a firearm and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. In August 1994, Teresa Stiles was sentenced to 12 years in prison at the age of 56. I read in one account that she won an appeal and was set free with $20,000 worth of bail in September of 1994, but was sentenced back to prison in November 1997 after another appellate court. That happens. Yeah. Glenn was the last one to be tried. His trial was in August 1994. He rejected a plea deal, allegedly on the advice of his mother. The jury for his case only deliberated for an hour and came back with a guilty verdict for the charges of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with an added term of 12 years. Glenn received the harshest punishment because it was believed that he was the mastermind behind the murder of his stepfather. Hmm. It seems so unfair. It does. It's quite the varying amount, isn't it? Yeah, and especially since he got off scot-free. Yeah, he could kill his daughter's fiancé and not spend a day in jail. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. That's why I said the real circus is about to begin after that murder. That's crazy. When looking into their sentences, it is reported that Teresa was released early in the year 2000 and returned to live in Gibsonton. Chris was also released early in 2009 and has lived a quiet life since. Glenn never made it out of prison but died behind bars in 2014. And he was just protecting his mom. Yeah. Not to excuse though. Yeah. If you're gonna Let's protect still murder. her murder. Yeah, help her flee the scene, right? Yeah. I think it just
1: makes it seem that much more harsher because the guy that was the problem didn't face any punishment for what he had done.
0: Right. And now four people are going to prison for his death. That's right.
1: Yeah. But I guess revenge is not a good thing.
0: <laughs> no. But
1: Grady should have went to jail. Yeah. Grady should have been to and jail I-
0: and none of this would have even happened.
1: And I think that because he didn't go to jail, that's what makes this seem so
0: much worse. And as them being an abused family, they would have been even that much more terrified because the police wouldn't help them. Mm -hmm. He could literally shoot them in their home or right outside their home and he knew he wasn't going to jail. Yeah. Allegedly, the carnival community did not mourn Grady's death. Only 10 people showed up to his funeral and not one person was willing to be one of his pallbearers. Oh. And honestly, I'm not surprised. He was a tyrant. Nobody wanted to come to his funeral. Rolling into people with his head. That's right. Swatting them with his hands. Just, yeah, he was just mean. Pinching them. Yeah. Community member Judy Rock, the daughter of the giant man and half woman who I quoted earlier, said that there hadn't been this much disharmonious uproar since Grady had murdered his daughter's fiance. She said, quote, we don't even like to talk about that. It was all so terrible. Grady Stiles Jr. was buried at Sunset Memory Gardens in Thanotasasa, Florida, in the showman section of the cemetery. He was able to be buried by his father, Grady Stiles Sr. That doesn't seem right. I know. But isn't that like a place of honor? I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. But no, they let him be buried in the showman section. Huh. I guess there was no fine print on why you would get excluded from the hut. Yeah. Before I end with a quick update on some of Grady's surviving family members, I want to quickly cover how this case influenced the media. The fourth season of American Horror Story was inspired by Gibsonton, the town that I described. The character of Jimmy Darling was made after Grady, and there is apparently a statue that looks just like Grady in the opening credits. American Freak Show, The Terrible Tale of Sloth Boy is a graphic novel that mimics Grady's life. He is also featured in a Deadpool comic. The X-Files has an episode based on Gibsonton, and there have been multiple books, TV episodes, and even a song written about Grady. There was just too many to include. As I mentioned, let's end on a family update, or at least the most recent information that I could find on them. Kathy, Grady and Teresa's daughter, still lives in Florida with her husband, carnival worker Tyrell Berry. They have a beautiful daughter together who was born with ectrodactyly. Kathy has done some acting and has appeared in the Tim Burton show Big Fish and has made an appearance in the show Carnival. Now I want to go watch Big Fish to see if I can see her in it. (laughs) Next movie night. And that's why I said I would use their names because she's not the only one who's done some acting and things like this. Grady Stiles III, who was asleep in bed when his father was shot, claimed that his father's murder didn't happen exactly like it was reported. He said, quote, What actually happened was my mother and my dad had gotten in another fight as usual, and my mother had made the comment that something needed to be done. My brother had overheard that and went to the neighborhood and told him that something had to be done. My brother thought that meant scaring him or beating my dad up or something to make him realize that he was going to lose his family. A little while later, my dad was shot. Hmm. So that's his perspective on it.
1: But you could see how a child would try to put his own family members in the best light.
0: For sure. Grady III also has a daughter who was not born with ectrodactyly. He met and fell in love with a bearded lady, Jessa Olmstead. They met while working on an episode of the AMC reality show called Freak Show. He told the Huff Post, quote, The first time I saw Jessa, I was amazed that she can grow a bigger beard than me. It didn't take long for me to know that we were meant for each other. Aww. As of 2016, Grady III was planning to move from Florida to California to be with Jessa and work the Venice Beach Carnival Show. About his father, Grady III has said, quote, I'm not a fan of my dad as a person. My father was racist and abusive. When I cried, he was like, I'll give you a reason to cry. When asked what he would want to say to his father if he could, Grady III said, quote, Thank you for showing me who not to be, and maybe you can appreciate who I became because of that. You were a drunk, but you were my dad. And that is the bizarre case of a self-proclaimed monster lobster boy, so mean that his own family wanted him dead, and no one cared, once he was, the dirtbag abuser and murderer, Grady Stiles Jr. That was a bizarre case. Wasn't it wild? So was I right? Was that a case like none you've heard before? not with a lobster boy no no or where he doesn't go to jail because of a condition that he has yeah that seems so crazy right
1: yeah that's not equality at all
0: no you do the crime
1: you do the time (laughs) you figure it out (laughs) and what were the prison guards thinking we're like yeah we don't want that murderer he's too much trouble to look after
0: since when do they get to decide yeah they're like honestly we can't house him figure something else out And so he had house arrest but was allowed to move and then 15 years of probation. And honestly, what's house
1: arrest for a guy like that other than now everybody has to be my servants? Yeah. Yeah. So he'd go to work. He would travel around wherever, but then he could always have the excuse like when you don't want to go out and do errands or whatever, oh, I'm on house arrest. Right. Everybody else has to be
0: your slave. (laughs) He probably did use that to his advantage when it fit him.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. They caused his murder. (laughs)
0: Yeah, we blame the prison system. (laughs) No, they didn't actually. But if it was like a mobility thing, how to get him around, I'm sure they could have come up with something. Yeah. To get him from one floor to the other. He could climb the stairs. And he could. He could crawl around.
1: Yeah. Quite well. That is just a crazy, bizarre case. It is. That was a good case suggestion, Rusty. Thanks.
0: Yeah, thanks again. And Melissa has another wild case in store for us next time. I do. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful week. See ya. Bye. <laughs>
1: blah, 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 blah. Two completely different murders.
0: <laughs> I'm trying you to... You can't think. murder the same person <laughs> twice. <laughs> My mom does comment. She's like, I laugh at Melissa because she wants to know the ending right away. Like she does, but I can't always give it away. Does he stab somebody? I'm not going to tell you.
1: He strangles people. You gave it away. No, he doesn't. No, he no. doesn't. <laughs> Is <it> the wife? <laughs> let your freak, <laughs> let your freak flag fly. Finally, we get you singing. That's going in the bloopers. Never take it down, never take it down. <laughs> You better be listening. That's right. No. Don't put that in there, Christy. I won't.
0: You're so funny. I didn't put that in there. I just came up with that now. First shy side show. First shy oh, It's because I'm looking at side and show together.
1: to shy show. Okay. Be mature, Melissa. <laughs> Next time I suggest doing it at nighttime, we cannot do it at nighttime.
0: (laughs) Well, one of us can't do it at nighttime.
1: Everything is just so funny. My mind is going like every which way. Sorry, I'm going to be more mature now.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) right. (laughs) She's lying. (laughs) To send her to do it. (laughs) What's that sound? I don't know. Is that your computer? The printer. Ghosty says hi.
1: What the heck?
0: He was drinking his alcohol of choice, which was Siemens. No, Siemens. <laughs> Seagrams. <laughs> Not semen. Seagram. <laughs> oh man. Oh, let me start the sentence for a third time.
1: Hopefully, you can get something out of yeah. that. Oh man. <laughs>